specific group, the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. That's who's being instructed here. That's who's being taught here. That's who's being given instruction. Believers find the promises of God a great delight and a great comfort. We all do. Favorites are lifted from the scripture and they're memorized and they're turned into handsomely designed memes and they're framed and they're hung about and even emblazoned on t-shirts at times. They buoy us up in times of sorrow and grief. They, they challenge us when we're down or discouraged and they can really energize our faith when it's burning low. Your experience may be different than mine, but there are some promises that I don't think I've ever seen get that sort of popular treatment. And one of them is the promise that you find here in the sixth verse of Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 6 promises you that whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, I'm sure someone has made a meme out of that verse because every sentence in the English language eventually becomes one. But please don't send it to me. I haven't seen it, and I don't know that I want to. My point is simply that, generally speaking, this promise is not a popular favorite when it comes to fashion or decoration or social media communication. We don't usually send this one out when we are willing to encourage somebody. But that being said... Christians do value this promise. And they are thankful for the faithful discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. Just as it's needed and is profitable in the home or in the classroom, it's a very valuable part of our lives as believers. This discipline that the Lord treats us with from day to day and from time to time. We find comfort in the fact that he corrects us and he instructs us because he does love us. And though the scourging isn't pleasant at the moment, it's certainly not ever pleasant to the flesh, the Spirit treasures it because it inevitably brings the Christian nearer to the Lord. I think every parent knows that some of the tenderest and sweetest moments of communion with their children often follow the careful, prayerful, and properly administered discipline of them. That's when they come closer. That's when they're humble. That's when they express their acknowledgement of your love for them in more than common ways. King David wrote many beautiful psalms, but none are so sweet as his penitential psalms, the ones in which he's repenting after the Lord's correction, where after feeling the Lord's whipping, and he couches it in those terms, he draws near in love 
and worships the Lord. Psalm 51 is probably the classic example of that. What precious words we find there in verses 14 through 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And that psalm, that whole psalm, along with all the other penitential psalms, is just full of tenderness and, and love towards the Lord. Interestingly, David had this promise concerning Solomon from the Lord. It's one of the great promises that God gives to David concerning his son Solomon. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. 2 Samuel seven twelve. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. When you're thinking about the promises to your children that the Lord has given, do you reflect on the fact that one of the most precious ones is that as a covenant parent, he promises he'll discipline your children if they need it. But it is a blessing, and that's the promise he gives here. That I will discipline, I'll, I'll discipline him with the whipping of the sons of men if he needs it. But I'll do it because I love him and because of my love for you. As the children of the one greater than David, King Jesus, you can expect the same covenant care from the Father who has adopted you as his sons and daughters. The Bible tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day and they're dealt with justly according to their sin. But he loves his children every day and deals with us in regard to our sin by love because the justice of the matter has already been satisfied in Jesus Christ. We are received in him and by him. That is, as the original compound word here emphasizes or implies we are received, we are acknowledged by him to be his own and thereupon to take, he's promised to take special care of us, says Gouge. He acknowledges us and he promises to take special care of us as his adopted children. Throughout history, adoption has served this purpose. It's the taking of those who are without serving parents, making them their own, and then taking care of them. Everyone adopted by God the Father has his promise that he's going to acknowledge you as his son or his daughter and that you're going to receive his special care, which includes a good whipping when you need it. That's his promise here. 
It includes discipline when love requires it. Now, the general doctrine being set set forth here is described by John Brown in this way, and he does a beautiful job with it. John Brown says, The general truth is, affliction in some form or other is allotted by God to every individual whom he regards with peculiar favor as the necessary means of promoting their spiritual improvement and is therefore to be considered as a proof of his parental love. In other words, you know God loves you because he disciplines you. You know that you're one of his. You know that he's adopted you because he disciplines you. Now, it's not true that any affliction endured by any individual is evidence of God's love towards them. But believers can anticipate that they are going to be disciplined by some affliction as a token of God's love for them. Now, we established last week that, generally speaking, discipline has three elements. It has chastening, instruction, and nurturing in it. And it has a threefold aim. The aim of producing repentance, wisdom, and loving obedience. And all of those things carried out in faith as a result of the discipline that we receive. This is the proper design of all parental discipline. Um, Whether it's stemming from parents in an earthly sense, or whether it's stemming from our Heavenly Father. With earthly parents, this discipline often suffers from all the flaws inherent and uh, the, in the finite and the weak hands of fallen men and women. We, we discipline sometimes in the wrong way for the wrong motives and sometimes uh, without uh, the wisdom that we need. We make those mistakes and we need to pray for the Lord's forgiveness for them. We need to pray for the forgiveness of our children when we do that. But we, we do it. And that's part of being who we are. But with the Lord, there is no need for that kind of thing because his discipline is perfect. Thankfully, Christian parents have the grace of God at work in their efforts, and they can find direction and wisdom for their efforts in disciplining. They can find it from the Word of God. They can find strength from the Holy Spirit to carry it out carefully. They can find forgiveness and sanctification in Christ as well. When you're uncertain, you can go to the Lord for wisdom. When you feel weak and overwhelmed, you can ask for strength and fortitude from the Spirit. And where you fail, you can ask for forgiveness in Christ and pray that the Lord will, according to his precious promises, counter your mistakes, counter the effects, and work all things together for good as he's promised. But in our Heavenly Father, beloved, with the discipline of, of, of our God, things are much different. He disciplines with righteous perfection. He dis, his discipline has nothing in it lacking. There's nothing lacking in it that is needed. There's nothing in it that is improper. There's nothing in it that is misaimed. There's nothing that is unprofitable in his discipline. Psalm 145 verse 17 tells us that the Lord is righteous in all his ways. 
and kind in all his works. And that includes his discipline of his people. They are the chastisements of the Lord, the greatest, the wisest, the best of beings, says Brown, who can do nothing without a reason, nothing without a good reason, nothing in caprice, nothing in cruelty. Treat them not then as common valueless things, those disciplines of the Lord. Now, this chapter references this truth when it says down in verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, always our good, that we may share his holiness. The discipline of the Lord comes to us in different ways and at different times. Sometimes it's in the form of illness. Sometimes in other sorts of trials. Sometimes it comes to us in the losses that we have to endure. Sometimes in other kinds of challenges, even persecution. But we can always be certain that whatever way God chooses to discipline us, it is an act of of love designed for our good and carried out perfectly by the one who chastens every son and every daughter whom he loves. Now, look here. Look at what's said in chapter 12 and verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's the ESV. The the New King James says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? The King James and the New King James make this sound conditional. But it's more a statement of fact than a conditional proposition. You endure being disciplined... Because God is treating you as sons. And that's true regardless of how often or how sharp those disciplines may be. You endure them because God is treating you as sons or daughters. It is for the profit that arises from discipline itself that we need by faith to remain patiently and quietly under that discipline and thereby demonstrate our adoption. It's by enduring that we gain the profit. But this enduring is something more than simply bowing to the inevitable. It's acknowledging that the Lord is disciplining me and he's doing this because I need to feel the pain of whatever it is I'm suffering through. I need the education. I need the wisdom that God is bringing to me by allowing this in my life. And I need it for the nurturing of my soul so that I can learn to love him more and I can see more clearly his love for me. It's not, beloved, the one who accepts the discipline of the Lord because he or she has no choice that's going to benefit from it. But the one who accepts it 
as an evident token of God's love, that's the one who properly profits from that discipline. Job, in chapter 13 of his book, verse, uh, in chapter 13, verse 15, he makes that statement where he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He may discipline me with that, but I will hope in him, his goodwill towards me. Later on, he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I will be corrected. I I will be repentant. I will be wiser. I will be more in love with him and know more of his love for me. I will come forth as gold. And in Psalm 23, we all, when we repeat this well-known psalm, we all say this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will pass through the discipline of the valley of death, but I'll be, I will trust in you, because I know of your love for me. We have spoken about the prophet in general terms. It provides the chastening or the reminder that the course we're on is a dangerous one and will prove painful. It increases our wisdom by educating us. And it testifies to the fact that we are loved because we're not placated, we're not indulged, but we're guided and we're directed and we're disciplined by the hand of God. And even greater prophets Uh, relating to endurance, our promise to us in the word of God. In Matthew 10.22, Jesus is talking about the persecution of the saints by the world. And he says there, you will be hated by uh, by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. The person who endures that hatred by putting his or her confidence and trust in the Lord and walking under that discipline will in the end be saved. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writing to Timothy says in verse 12, if you endure, you shall also reign with him. If you deny him, he also will deny us. And then James says in James 5:11, indeed we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What was the intention of Job's suffering? That he would learn that the Lord was very compassionate and merciful. And how did he learn that lesson? Through all the discipline that comes in the beginning of the whole book. The intention of God in that, the intention of Satan was something different, right, in the temptation. It was to separate Job from God. It was to destroy the relationship between them, to to make Job's faith a mockery. That was Satan's temptation. But because Job endured, God's intention in letting him be tried that way was that Job might learn how compassionate and how merciful the Lord is. He needed to learn that through discipline. If we look back in the text uh, to chapter 10, we're in chapter 12. If you look back to chapter 10, 
we get a fuller picture of the heart of this of the writer's admonition here. Back in verse 32 of chapter 10, he says this, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, that is, after they came to the gospel and the understanding of the gospel, you endured a hard, a long and sharp struggle. That struggle you should think of as someone contending in the arena, in competition, perhaps even for his life. So you first believed, recall that, the author's saying, bring that back up to mind, how you endured a long and sharp struggle with sufferings. There were sufferings involved sometimes being publicly exposed, that is, put on display at the theater or put on stage for the purpose of mockery. Think of Samson brought into the, the uh, temple to be mocked by the people. They bring him on in here so we can make fun of him and jeer at him, saying, you were treated that way. You were put out in public and made a public spectacle. You were put out on display or you were exposed to reproach, to being reviled and upbraided. And affliction, that is restriction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, the reason I bring this up is because when you go back, when you go forward to chapter 12, and you're talking about the discipline that these people have to adjust to, this is the kind of discipline that he's referring to. This kind of public display. This kind of painful enduring of persecution. And he's saying, this is the discipline the Lord has subjected you to, subjected you to and now you are to remember that that is not a token of the fact that he's displeased with you but the fact that you endured through all that is a testimony to the fact that you were his and that he loves you and that he cares for you and you are his children this was serious discipline it was extended it was sharp they were attacked and they suffered from it They were shamefully treated in public. They were labeled despicable and dangerous. And yet they endured in their faith. Now it's really important, beloved, that we not put these believers in some sort of isolated category. And by that I mean that we remember that they were people just like you and me. They had families. And they had friends. And they had feelings, and they had emotions, and homes, and jobs. Just as you can imagine these matters impacting you in your life, you can imagine them impacting their lives. It's not like they're in some special category. Oh, they were those New Testament believers, and you know they were impervious to all this, and they lived a whole kind of different life than I do. And when somebody says mean things about me because I'm a Christian, it's much more hurtful than it was for them. 
No, it's, it was the same for them as it is for you and the same for you as it was for them. But they, despite all of this, behaved themselves as the children of God through that trial. The call we have is found in Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We really don't know what lies ahead. We don't know what the future holds for us. If the course that our society is on now remains unchecked, it's not hard to see more of us being asked to endure such discipline for the Savior's sake as evidence that he endured much more for our sakes. Some believers here in our country and already around the world have been called to endure. And many of us may yet be summoned. And we must not forget this admonition. We must not forget it. You endure because you are his children. You endure because he loves you. You must gain the profit of discipline, and you gain it by endurance. When we find ourselves chafing under the hand of God, it's good to consider what's causing that agitation. Invariably, with our Heavenly Father, the discipline carefully matches the need. Perhaps we need to be weaned from some idolatrous delight or separated from some nagging, encumbering sin. Perhaps our faith needs strengthening or someone else's does. And we're going to be enlisted to be disciplined by the Lord to be an example to them, to strengthen them in their faith, to strengthen them and encourage them in their love for the Lord. Maybe it's just for the good and the prospering of Christ's own kingdom. We think of the man who was born blind from birth. And when Jesus is asked why he had to endure this sin or this, uh, this trial, he's asked for um, what sin were he or his parents being disciplined that he was suffering this terrible trial of being born blind. Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Who's being disciplined here, they asked Jesus. You remember Jesus' answer? He says, not for that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Not for any discipline regarding sin, but disciplined for the glory of God. Gouge says, sometimes God scourges his for the more evident proof of that true and great grace that is in them. This was Job's case. At other times, for a manifestation of his detestation of their enormous and scandalous sins, this was David's case. But whatever the reason, what causes the discontent and the agitation when we're under that discipline? Do we despise the authority and the sovereignty of God over us? Do we despise or resent having our wills checked? Or our demands denied? Do we imagine ourselves to be above others? 
and free of any need of correction? Or are we just too spoiled and soft? Why do we chafe? Why do we fight? Why do we resist that discipline? In the second half of verse 7, he says, For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In the second half of the verse, and then in verse 8, he sets forth another simple but sobering truth. And it's one that's based on simple reasoning. If all sons are chastised, says Guj, then they who are not chastised are no sons. If all sons and daughters are chastised, and a person is not chastised, then they are no sons. The undisciplined professing man or woman is, despite that confession, no son or daughter. In the last few centuries, there's been a tendency to understand this word translated illegitimate as what was once commonly referred to as a changeling. We don't use the term in the same way it was used centuries ago today. Today it has sort of a, a mysterious occult aspect to it, but it didn't then. A changeling was a child secretly substituted for the parent's real child, where the real child was taken and another child was put in its place. And here the Holy Spirit is dealing with those who by some profession claim to be the children of God, but who cannot and do not endure the chastening or more seriously the scourgings of the Heavenly Father. Who abandon their faith and their goodly walk and their godly walk, their testimony, in either a protest against their being put to trial and or in an effort to escape it. You think of someone who's being put to trial in some way and they're supposed to submit uh, in a certain way to that trial. They're, they're dealing with some difficulty. Maybe it's a relationship with their parents and they're struggling to honor their parents and they get to the point where they just feel like they can't do that any longer and so they break from that honoring of their parents in their heart and in their practice. And the excuse is, It's just too hard. That lack of endurance under the discipline of the Lord in putting you in that situation is evidence that perhaps you are not a child of God because you could not endure under the discipline that God exposed you to. This is referred to by Jesus in the parable of the sower under the head of the rocky ground. He says in Matthew 13, 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So here's, I use the context of children. We can think of it in the context of marriage. Here's a husband and wife. They're struggling together. Um, they, they know what their obligation and responsibility is to one another. They abandon that obligation and responsibility before the Lord. It is a, at least a, a caution 
that what is professed is not believed because true children endure. Immunity from chastening and scourging is a sign not of favor, but disfavor. So how do we view these things? So how are we to to view the rising tide of trouble for men and women of faith in our present context? Is it a token of God's displeasure with his people? Is that why we're seeing the changes that we're seeing in our culture and, and the attacks being made upon Christianity and Christian values? Perhaps. Perhaps. But in the same sense, as a faithful and loving father disciplines his children, it also shows his care for his loved ones. And not as a token that he has rejected them if they are enduring. It's a token of his love for them. We have a classic example of that. Arrested by the leaders of the Jews, Peter and the other apostles were released from prison by God. They returned to the temple and started teaching again. They were arrested a second time. And Peter gave his celebrated answer to his persecutors when he said in Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We read that when Peter gave that answer, they were enraged. And they wanted to kill Peter and the other apostles right there for saying that. That was their desire, but it wasn't God's design. So they warned them away from their bloody passions. The Lord did that by one of their own. And then we read in verse 40, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council depressed and dejected and so sad that they had to suffer so much for the cause of Christ. I don't know if it's up behind me, but you know that's not what, happened, what the rest says, right? They went out, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that in their endurance, they found evidence of their adoption. And that's what we look for. What are we to look for? We're to look for that evidence of our adoption. That's what we should be looking for, whether the discipline is brought to bear within our bodies, within our families, or within our society. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit um, of glory and of God rests upon you. You have to endure discipline to get the profit of discipline. And the greatest profit of all is the assurance that you are indeed his and that he loves you and that the discipline is designed for your good and not for your harm. Hebrews says, 
That's what happens to every child of God. We learn through these things. What we're going to have to suffer in the days ahead, we don't know. Maybe nothing. Maybe much for the cause of Christ. But we need to be praying to endure, to be looking for that evidence of the fact that we are Christ's and he is ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you, some of us are already under uncommon testing. We are already feeling your discipline in different ways. And Lord, for each one who is under your hand of discipline right now, I pray, Lord, that they will be comforted by the testimony of your word and that they will endure for the profit of the discipline. That they might, Lord, know your loving care for them and know that they are yours. Help them, Lord, to abide in faith. Help them, Lord, to continue to put their trust in you. If the, if the trial gets sharper, we pray, Lord, that their faith will be made stronger by you and your grace at work in them. Lord, refine us, sanctify us by your grace. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not been enduring under the discipline, who has been chafing under it, I pray, Lord, that they will carefully examine their hearts and see what is at the root of their resistance of your discipline. And Lord, if they are yours, that they will repent and, Lord, uh, sit under your hand as your people by faith and by grace. And if they understand that they are not yours because they are being disciplined and they aren't being profited by it, that, Lord, even now they would surrender and surrender to you, Lord, through the Lord Jesus Christ accept his sacrifice for their sins and find peace even in their testing and trying. If there's anyone, Lord, who feels like their life is free of all trial, may they be warned that being free of trial is no sign of favor because you do discipline every son whom you love and you do chastise every son whom you delight in, who you receive, who you acknowledge as your own. Bless these thoughts to our hearts now, Lord, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.